farming happen at night? <laughs> well, I think at four in the morning it is effectively happening at night. It's just the other end of night. <laughs> I would love to be the 4 a.m. farmer if it meant I could then sleep until like 10. I could not live on farm time or night farm time, which night I think is a new time. kind of farm time you've farm. invented. <laughs> Welcome to the night farm. Wow, is it really her school a night farm when you think about it? <laughs> new title of our podcast night farm night farm with t pierce can we do the real podcast now yeah Hi, and welcome to Tordal Recall, the podcast where we reread the Tamara Pierce books and yell about them. Uh, today we are talking about Lady Knight, which is the fourth book in the Protector of the Small series. It was originally published in 2002. Um, that's something we do now. We say when the books got published. I'm into it. It's helpful. It's good context. You were in second ish grade? You could figure it out because the dedication in this book is about 9 11. Oh, oh, wow. Yes. Didn't look at um, that. Yeah. Anyway, I have a name, and it is Grace. Um, and my pronouns are she, her, and now everyone's reading the dedication in this book <laughs> instead of introducing themselves. Don't you want to ask a question or something? Yeah. The question is, what would you call your um, camp, uh, like Kel names her camps? And obviously, now I'm going to steal the referential answer, which is the night farm. <laughs> um, <laughs> Before anyone else can get to it. Um, all right. Abby? Yeah. Okay. Hi. My name is Abby. My pronouns are she, her. Okay. So I, on the topic of camps, before I, before I reread this book, for some reason I thought the name of the camp was going to be Refuge, and I think that must be like a different pop culture reference, but I don't know what it is. Oh, it sounds really familiar. It sounds familiar. There's a, Adventures I believe that there is a thing maybe i don't think that's my reference my reference point at the moment i don't know there's something somewhere called ref- refuge that my brain was there thinking sure of. is and i don't i don't know what it was but lacking that point of reference i will call my camp refuge can listeners kind of, tweet at you if they listeners can tweet is. at me if they know of things in books or other pop culture called refuge <laughs> right uh amy hi i'm amy my pronouns are she, her, and I would call my fort Fort Non-Threatening, so no one would attack it. <laughs> fort, please don't attack. I feel like the raiders might see through that clever ruse. Fort Very Threatening. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Shelby? Uh, my name is Shelby. My pronouns are she, her, and I think I'm just going to call my, my fort uh, Fort Anywhere But Here for where it should be. <laughs> <laughs> good Great. also to be clear it's not a fort it's just called haven it's not like she made a point fort that haven. it's not a fort yeah it's just a a cool time. i would call it camp fort <laughs> um camp, camp fort, fort. <laughs> so First, we're going to talk about first adventure what were your uh original experiences with this book um does anyone have anything 
they remember about originally reading this book. <laughs> I don't have anything about originally reading this book. I do have an origin story with this yeah. book, which uh, is... Yes, please. Abby gave it to me when we were graduating, and she was going to just leave it in the lobby. And today I found out that she forgot what happened to it. <laughs> but it's that I, I have it. <laughs> yeah. I really forgot that I gave it to Amy, and I was like, oh, I know I had a copy of Lady Knight. What did I do with it? Why gave was it to your Amy. original plan, leave it in the lobby? Because I was moving out of my dorm, and a lot of people were leaving books. They had a donation spot in the lobby. <laughs> yeah, there was a donation okay. spot. But you donated it directly to Amy instead. Yes, <laughs> yes she pulled it out of the donations and handed it to me. <laughs> I had not read the first three books at this point, but she was really confident I would get there, and I'm glad that we had that moment. And I'm glad she believed it. <laughs> Great. Right, that was also, she knew. I guess it wasn't that, like, it wasn't that long after that that we started this podcast. I guess it was a little while after, but, like, uh... Right, I gave it to you like a full two years ago then, and you have only just now read it for the first time, but I am glad you got there. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I'm the little engine that could have podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also, in terms of impressions, wanted to talk about the uh, the newer cover of this book, the photo one. Uh, has everyone seen that? Mm. It, does she have freckles or blood on her face? Oh, I think she has. Wait, let me look it's, this up. It, the newest ones, I know she just does have like grime and blood on her face on a lot of them. They're the worst. Yeah, my mom. I've had this debate. My like, mom literally like has trouble selling them to people in her shop because they look so bad. Yeah. Yeah, they do look Wait, a little. Wait, what one is this? It's not the the purple photography. No, it's not one. those. It's... Oh, oh yeah, I think I, I've seen that one, but it doesn't. I guess it only has a little bit of her face, but it does kind of have, like, spattering on it. Yeah, I think it's the current edition because I've seen it in bookstores. It's not good. Yeah, they've really gotten worse from the first one. I wish they would just stick with the first edition. I agree. I kind of hope that there's, like, nostalgia editions of Tomorrow Pierce that are just the older covers. Yeah, I would be into that. Yeah, I really like the original cover, which is the one that I have currently which is just like Kel in her armor with Peach Blossom who's also in armor and like a sparrow on her shoulder. So it's like a really good amount of like animals but also Kel just looks very like adult and determined and I'm very into that. Yeah, not so violenty looking. Uh, to continue with the like first things, the the only thing I remember distinctly about my first go through with this book was that my mom definitely told me to not read it then. Like she was like she had read it like she read them ahead of me and would, like make sure they were cool mm-hmm. or whatever and she was yeah. like you should wait like I'm not gonna make you but you should definitely <laughs> wait until you're like slightly older because you'll like it better then and it's a little dark huh. and that was right that was absolutely right I should have <laughs> waited like another year to I yeah I, I would say that I read this book too young for sure right. <laughs> I'm curious do you think that there's uh, a shift in tone from Squire because I feel like I had never noticed before but because we read them so back to back I did feel like there was a shift in Oh, time. definitely. Yeah, I think definitely. And I did notice that as a kid yeah. because I loved Squire and I really was on the fence about Lady Knight when I first read it. Like, I thought it was really? good and I, there were things in it I really liked, but it was too dark for me. Like, I could, I especially like the latter half of the book where everybody's in danger and you don't know who's gonna survive and lots of people die. Um, and lots right. of, like, innocent civilians die. I was just like, this is very dark and i don't know if i can handle this very much about the realities yeah. of war right it uh, really cool. does not shy away from the horrors of war and specifically it's about what happens to civilians in war which is like right. the darkest possible angle on that 
Right. Oh, man. Is this, a, like, is this very starkly a post-9-11 book? Oh, wow. <laughs> I wonder when she wrote right. it. Before we get too far into discussion, do we want to do a first test? And since we've referenced a little bit about the plot, just kind of go through the plot. Who's up for I it? I actually wrote down a couple of sentences. Whoa. Wow. wow. You're so familiar. Yeah, I want, well, like Aurora's Aurora. not here, so someone had to take that <laughs> on. Um, Aurora is tasked, or... <laughs> <laughs> this book is about our friend this Aurora. This book is about our friend Aurora, and we're really proud of her for being featured so prominently. All right. Hi, Aurora. I hope you're enjoying. Um, Kel is tasked by, by Wilden to run a camp for refugees of the war with Scanra. After a devastating attack in her absence, she defies her orders to save her people, complete the task divinely delegated to her, and protect the small. Also, there are robots. <laughs> okay. Also, be robots. Before we get into the robots, which I do, like, we could talk about the robots for sure. Um... <laughs> I do have a, a problem with the beginning of that summary where you said that she is taught by I Wilden, said tasked. which I really think is overstating. Is is asked by tasked by Wilden? Okay, I miss her. Oh, too. he taught her nothing. Um, yeah, she she figured it out on her own. She was ready to command this camp. Yeah, but like, yeah, what a wild thing to ask of someone who's relatively An early in their career. Who became a knight like three months ago. Although I did like that they did, and like, yes, this is ridiculous that she gets command. On the other hand, I did like that they emphasized like what skills she actually did have that were relevant, right. and the fact that mm -hmm. she had spent a lot of time, mostly off screen, but a little bit on screen in Squire, like gaining administrative skills. Uh, which are what yes. you need to run a yes. refugee camp. Yes. Right, no, she definitely has the skills for it. It's just such a terrifying situation to put an 18-year-old in. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else important to note about the, the plot? I mean, that was a pretty, like, obviously succinct summary, but I think you got a lot of it, so... Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I guess, specifically to tie the robots to the rest of it, <laughs> there's this mage guy who's making robots using the souls of children... They're like Al from Full Metal Alchemist, except scarier and worse. <laughs> um, and uh, Kel, right, goes to save the refugees that she's in charge of, but also in the process does, like, hunt down and kill that mage, turning the tide of the war, whatever. You know, that's part of it. Um, so those robots. We're going to do Run the Dominion Jewel and talk a little bit about the world building and what we learn about the world in this book. There's robots, apparently. I would, first of all, <laughs> before we get into this, I would like to somewhat challenge the classification of robots. Um, I wrote down, I wrote down a lot of facts about okay. why they're robots. She can, she, you can go yeah. first, Amy, and then I will counter your points. <laughs> okay. You wrote can down make, facts about why they're robots. Can I make one, one small point first, which is like, everyone knows to call them machines. <laughs> What other machines have we seen well, in this book? Simple I machines. mean, they have, like, pulleys yeah. and stuff. They have simple machines. Yeah, but then you see, like, a real robot, and you're like, oh, same as a pulley, basically. Well, it's not a real robot, but it's true that it's weird that they think of them as machines instead of, like, magical animated creatures. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that that's, um, like, some lack of continuity <laughs> in the world building. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, why are they robots, Amy? Please, tell me. Okay, so the first paragraph of this book is very much like, let me turn to the page. So, <clears throat> then against the blackness, light moved and strengthened to show 12 large, vaguely rat or insect-like metal creatures, devices built for murder. 
The killing devices were magical machines made of iron-coated giant's bones, chains, pulleys, dagger fingers and toes, and a long whip-like tail. The seven foot tall devices? Yeah, the rest of it's not relevant. Okay. So, (laughs) they are made of chains and pulleys, which is basically how gears work. And also, (laughs) everyone knows to call them machines. They're very complicated. They are metal-shaped, like, animated things that are propelled by their own, like, inner workings. And I think that the souls of children are equivalent to electricity. (laughs) Well, that's a hot take. (laughs) As backed up in the Monsters, Inc. series of movies. Yes, as we know, children's souls are a power source. <laughs> I said that I wrote facts about why they're robots, but actually I just wrote four words in quotes. <laughs> That's like a fact. <laughs> it's evidence. I mean, I think they're, they're certainly, ro- like, I mean, obviously they're powered by magic. They're certainly robot-like, but it is weird that in-universe they identify them as basically robots. Yeah, that is definitely weird, especially because the points, like, they are robot-like. The things that make them less like a robot are the inclusion of bones in their creation. Yep. Uh um, And then the fact that they are products of dark necromancy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So those two things. Isn't technology the darkest necromancy of all when you really think about it? Ooh, black mirror. What a statement. <laughs> Welcome to Bandersnatch, the podcast. <laughs> topical. <laughs> It'll be topical when it comes out in like, oh, like two weeks. Never mind. Anyway, I forget where I was going with this. Uh, they're robots. Robots. It's, it's kind of weird maybe. because like the word device not used elsewhere. I just, I'm mad that they know that they're robots. <laughs> I also just want to really quickly talk about how the third book of each series has introduced, like, a new fun genre thing that didn't seem to fit in with the rest of it. For example, the Immortals come in, like, I believe the third book of Alana, and then, like, in the third book of Dane, dinosaurs. Just dinosaurs. Yeah. Well, and also, why do we keep introducing new fun i thought you were gonna say a new fun genre of necromancy and when i think about it also true (laughs) you're not wrong very true (laughs) the third book of alana did introduce some fun new necromancy yeah yeah like what's the next one gonna be like aliens we're necromancing aliens well the the next series only has two books so there's not gonna be any new fun necromancy in the third book oh sorry amy I, don't, I guess we don't know what the third book of Becca Cooper holds for us, or I don't, because I haven't read superheroes? it. Superheroes? Have any of us? I don't. Think I think so. that superheroes probably got big around that time, so I'm thinking superheroes. But superheroes raised <laughs> from the dead? Yeah, zombie superhero vigilante justice. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, zombie superhero vigilante justice. I have a question for the more someone more genre savvy than me. Um, is this steampunk? I don't think so, because steampunk is specifically, like, a callback to the industrial era. Yeah? Yeah, no. Yeah, I agree. You can make an argument, actually, for, um, does anyone know what the, what the term for it is? Um, because there are other punks, right? So, like, it could be, um... Cyberpunk. Not cyber. It could be swordpunk. Swordpunk's not bad. Is swordpunk real? I don't know if that's a real thing. Nightpunk. No, I don't think so. I think I just made it up. Someone else has probably coined it before me. Here, I'll Google it. I'll Google it. 
I bet there's a zine out there. The first link, the first link when you Google it is sword punk, an unlikely new subgenre. <laughs> so there you go. All right. Any more commentary on necromancy and robots? Um, um, I guess I want. I felt like we should probably mention, and this could maybe be a segue into more sort of like God Chamber of the Ordeal stuff. That like the Chamber of the Ordeal is not like su- doesn't find it super urgent that Kel stop this from happening but is, like, against it on a, like, it's unnatural in the world level, which is not something that we've really seen. I mean, I guess it's possible that the gods were mad about, like, Roger's blood magic stuff, and we just never really saw that, but I don't, um, I can't think of another specific time when we've had the gods say, like, this thing is unnatural, and you need to stop it because I, it's unnatural. The graveyard hag was more just like, you need to stop this guy because I personally don't like him. <laughs> Not a fan. But with this one, there's a consensus among the gods. Everybody hates this guy. <laughs> I mean, we don't even know. Like, I think we've only seen the Chamber of the Ordeals mm-hmm. opinion on it. Because that's the only, like, yeah. quote unquote, god that Kel interacts with. Right. <clears throat> no, I actually had that thought earlier of, like, there is... Like, this guy, guy is using some magic. I'm pretty sure that magic does come from the gods, so that does imply that there are at least some gods that are on this page. That's what they established in Alana. Although I feel like as as time has gone on and Tortal has gotten more developed, it's gradually sort of become more like magic is not, you know, wishes granted by the gods. Magic is like a natural force that mages use, you know? So, right. I mean, presumably on some level everything comes from the gods. It's... Religion is so weird when the gods yeah. exist in reality <laughs> and people interact with yeah. them. It's very strange. I think the closest we get to knowing the opinion of any other gods is at some point there's a council that happens and people are like, why aren't oh, the gods yeah. stopping this? And Alana's kind of like, eh, they might be trying, <laughs> but they're not uh, great at it. Like, Maybe they're busy. Oh, right. Well, and yeah, at some point someone says like, well, sometimes they work through people and Kella's like, uh... <laughs> yeah, I think Dane is the one who says oh, that, Dane and she was, is very qualified. True. Either Dane or Numere. I like too that I really feel like Kel's reaction to that was like that doesn't sound very reasonable or efficient. Like, <laughs> so she's so right. She's so practical. I love her. But yeah, I mean, on this topic, I kind of was not into the fact that, um, you know, in this book, like in the previous book, in Squire, we got okay, you're having your ordeal, and while you're here, the chamber's like, it's your job to kill this guy. You know, like, this guy, you're gonna run into him, and you should know about that. Like, that's a god prophecy type of thing. Yeah, although I appreciated the ways they, like, also poked back at that. Like, you're right that there absolutely was more prophecy in this book, but they also had ways of reining it in. A couple of them being, um, the point where the, the old woman is like, yeah, um, saying, like, oh, she's God-touched, and everybody's like, wait, you can see that? And she's like, no, she's just surrounded <laughs> by, like, ridiculously smart animals and, like, is going on a quest to save her children. Like, of course she's God-touched, you guys! Like, so, like, that was a good moment. And then also the moment with the, the child, Ernai? Ernai? Yeah. Is that her name? Yeah. Um, when, um... They're like, oh, so we're, like, fated to succeed. And she's like, eh, your chances are one in two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, one thing that I really like about Kel 
like despite her being quote unquote chosen is that everything that she does is so obviously the only thing she would do like whether or not she was told to do mm-hmm. it right like, everything that she does yeah. is clearly a choice yeah yes. and right that's something i really appreciate about her and i think it's pretty clear that she doesn't <laughs> care that much if the gods think she's fated to do something cuz she's just going to do it cuz that's who she is as a person but i also think that like given that it's just what she would do because of who she is as a person, you know, she doesn't need a fancy title to do it. And that kind of, that kind of makes her more like every other Tamara Pierce protagonist who all have like their own special unique thing. And I kind of, you know, I love, I love it when Kel is just a girl who's really right. determined to do stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. So and it kind of takes like, away from that. Like I Kel think. is still the same character and still making these like good, Big right. choices about protecting people and and all of that like she hasn't lost any of that in her character but I feel like yeah having it prophesied in the or the prophecy in the narrative kind of takes away from how much I mean it doesn't because she's still really cool yeah but, I mean it makes her yeah. like this legendary yeah like it hero. would have been cool if they yeah. she could still get the protector of the small moniker but just because people were like oh she's so great she's like a protector of the small Right, like, if you wanted to do that title draw- drop, you could do it because, like, oh, she rescued a bunch of refugees, and after that, right. she's known like, she for doing that, it, you know? Yeah. Instead of it I being wonder a how much thing. of that was kind mm-hmm. of a deliberate trade-off, because this is a really weird middle-grade fantasy book, right? Like, it takes place primarily in a refugee camp, and it's about the horrors <laughs> of war for citizens who are, like, for civilians who are affected. And also all the main characters are adults, pretty much. So, like, it's really pushing the, yeah, of, I, the I, definition it's definitely of middle grade. definitely verging into YA. But I was wondering more if this was a deliberate yeah. way to give the people who are less comfortable with that narrative choice a little bit more of a handle. You know, to give the kids who are like, but I'm sure. here for, like, this fantasy world. Why are we in a refugee camp talking about the proper places mm-hmm. to locate latrines? Like giving them a little something to hold on to, and I don't, I don't begrudge her that much because, frankly, we need more books about refugees and war for middle grade kids. And like, if that's how she gets them to read it, like, like I'm okay with that. And I, I am interested. Like when I think back to reading it as a kid, I agree with uh, Shelby and Abby. You both said that you felt too young to read it, or like you weren't exactly getting all of it when you first read it. Oh man, I was definitely not getting all of it. (laughs) I also think, like, from what I can remember, I grabbed more onto the she's on a magical quest plot, and now I see more of the, like, but it's really her internal moral drive and seeing what's right, you know? So I think that it... Yeah, I think thinking back to when I was a kid, I don't think that that part, like, the the prophecy sort of part of it and, like, the fabled hero type of thing, I don't think I, I especially liked that, but it also didn't stick out to me as a negative thing the way it does now I mean not that it's like you know it certainly didn't ruin the book for me or anything like it's fine like I you know it just goes against the things that I appreciate most about Kel I guess but like that it didn't stick out to me in that way as a kid sort of in the same vein I guess I just wanted to uh like circle back to our discussion about the chamber of the Mm -hmm. ordeal and like what does what we know now add to the way that we were talking about it last time when we were kind of wondering, like, is it a god? Is it a, what is it? Apparently uh, it can possess a small <laughs> child. So that's like a feature of it. Apparently. Um, I just want to really quickly, this like plug, 
One of our fans wrote a fan fiction from the point of view of the Chamber of the Ordeal and oh, yeah. on Tumblr, and we, yeah. if we haven't reblogged it already, we will, and it's by Tumblr user Zombie, and it's very good. So, yeah. there is mm-hmm. that <laughs> point of view. Cool. But yeah, um, I, like, I think a god can be a place. I mean, we've established in this universe that a god can be a place, because that's what Chitra yeah. is. Yeah. But like... The weird thing about the Chamber of the Ordeal is, like, it's a place, it's a room, which we've already talked about how that's kind of weird and interesting, but also, like, what's up with this girl that has, like, a connection to it? She just showed up out of nowhere, and the Chamber can talk through her. What's (laughs) the deal with that? That's kind of weird, huh? Yeah, no, I actually somewhat appreciate this book's commitment to, we still have no idea what what the Chamber is. Like, we don't really get... Yeah, I'm pretty into it, Uh, John did because they also have the ordeals of King 
Oh, that's true. Kinghood, mm. kingship, people being who get king. Cor- yeah, coronations <laughs> involve that. Also, that's true. Um, and I assume that John isn't the only one who went through it. So, I mean, presumably every, every king, king has done or, that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's more of like a you don't go in the chamber for a second time. Unless it's for a re, unless it's for like a reason. Okay. And yeah, I think but that's that also that's... like not what they said. Yeah, I mean, especially yeah. because Kel was specifically asking, "Has anyone gone into the chamber a second time?" And it's true that no one said in response to that. Well, yeah, the king, yeah. but no one else. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But that's that's true. I'm like willing to kind of accept that. I know that it like, I know that it is ignoring a canonical thing that happens, but like in a reasonable way because it wasn't terribly relevant yeah right yeah so that's why i'm saying like i know it's nitpicky it probably doesn't matter but i'm also interested in maybe she was like oh i don't actually i want this to be more unique instead of being like part of the normal stuff that goes on um which is i think it is unique because it's not for a test like it's just to hang out (laughs) yes true i mean it definitely is unique but right i think it's a little bit of just, like, an oversimplification, the way it was handled, which, yeah, I mean, it's pretty nitpicky. I also have a really nitpicky point, (laughs) um, which is that I'm pretty sure that in previous books, the sign against evil has been uh, described as, like, like, a claw thing that you do in front of your chest or something like that, and in this book, it was described as, like, basically crossing yourself, but with a another line. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, I don't know what's up with that. Got more Catholic. Uh, it did get more Catholic. But I, well, you know, now it's a star, so that's not a cross. That's not Catholicism. <laughs> Everyone has such thinly veiled fantasy Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Chamber of the Ordeal, still a mystery. I personally mm-hmm. believe that it is an alien that landed there, and the chamber is a <laughs> Very ship. into that. Yes, <laughs> love it. Aliens. <laughs> That would explain why the chamber looked different from the palace built around it. Yeah. Because it's an alien ship. It's an alien ship. (laughs) Don't at me. (laughs) It's literally just a holodeck. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a holodeck that really wants to freak people out. It's a holodeck that hates you. Listen, there's not enough space in this book, so I had to put some space in there. (laughs) Yeah. There should be more space in this fantasy world, probably. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, world development? Uh, I have one very important question. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, are ghosts real? That's yes, in this question. world and all others. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yes, of course ghosts are real. But in this book... Because she does, like, say a prayer to, like, keep the ghosts from getting angry at her. And I was just like... Like, it always comes up when they bring up something that could be superstition in a fantasy world. Like, maybe Is it? they're real. Maybe they're there. Yeah. Well, we don't talk about things that are haunted. Like, graveyards. Right. No, but, like... I don't think they've ever mentioned the existence of ghosts prior to that scene. Right, and she couldn't sort of mean more, like, spirits, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Like, it's she, she might not mean that there's, like, evidence of ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, well, but she's kind of, she is thinking, like, oh, like, I want to protect myself from these spirits uh, yeah. that could potentially act, um, which is more like what I would think of as a, a real ghost. <laughs> um, but it just, I love the idea that we have a fantasy world with actual magic and magical things, but maybe there are also superstitions that aren't real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. like, probably, right? Yeah, anywhere. 
good question. We'll have to keep track of it. I know that it comes up in a little bit in later books, too, so it'll be interesting to see mm-hmm. what we think after reading more about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we ready to talk about some character development? Uh, one quick last thing, because I know that this podcast is obsessed with fantasy food. Yes. Um, we did introduce Fantasy Instant Roman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. Thank you. Thank that you. That was good. Okay. Yeah, it's dried balls of noodles, but they're like... With spices. With spices. And we have that. Like, they just have that. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, I, that's a fantasy thing that I really like, which I've also, I think, mentioned in regards to, like, toothbrushing, is, like, just here's a modern amenity that they super didn't have in that time period, but, like, they could have if they had figured yeah, it out. So in this fantasy them. world, they do. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very like, into it. Who's making the noodles? How are they drying them out? I just want to know. <laughs> I want to know about who's making the fantasy ramen. I mean, people also did have, like, pasta for a while in the past. Like, that's not Excuse new. Me. Well, I'm not talking about pasta, though. I'm talking about the fantasy ramen, which is dried in, like, I feel like it's dried in a very different way because it is made to be rehydrated really quickly. I mean, we don't, it, I, I think it could just be noodles, like regular noodles. No, ramen is not different. I think we have no evidence that it's not. <laughs> we did not actually get a cook time. Like, they didn't tell us how to make it in the book. That's true. Like, you're right. But also, it's very clearly supposed to be based on ramen because it's a quickly portable snack that you can eat in, like, a minute. So and no one said you could eat it in a minute. Well, okay. They said if you put it in boiling water, it makes an okay stew. <laughs> I, okay, also, I do... I do want to point out that, like, a stew and a soup are different, but not that's for a different podcast. Uh, Isn't that Top sure. Robin's slogan, an okay stew? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, anyway, I just, like, I feel like I just want to know what the production process on the ramen is. Okay, maybe that's the next book. I'm pretty sure that's I Becca really... Cooper 3. Okay. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> That's also like Tempest and Slaughter is just numeric inventing things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that that's what Tordalini is? Do you think that? Oh no! Have oh, we cracked no. the code? Oh no! <laughs> we cracked it. Yeah. Okay. Please talk about character development. There was a chapter in this book called "Kel Takes Command," and I was very into that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also reminded me a lot of, like, Babysitter's Club book titles. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Uh, specifically because isn't there one called Christy Takes Charge or something yeah, like that? Is. Same, yeah. basically. Oh, and mm-hmm. she's babysitting. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's also caring for adults. <laughs> like... I was about to say that it's not babysitting when it's her own kid, but then I remembered she does babysit other kids besides yeah. the one that she randomly adopts yeah. in this Yeah, and book. also, maybe I meant Owen. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah she does babysit Owen. <laughs> not very responsibly, because they let him come on a treasonous suicide mission. <laughs> yeah. Although, that wasn't Kel's fault. I mean, again, I mean, it like, wasn't maybe not her not fault, Kel's but she fault. wasn't being a great babysitter. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. Also, is this to Kellenbach? Like, should we be comparing Kel to Alana at this point? Yeah, this is to Kellenbach yeah, if should. you want it to be. Okay. She has friends is the difference between her and Alana in this book. It's true. Primarily, it's great. I would say. Like, even when Kel tries to do stuff the way Alana would, which is breaking Riding off in off secret alone. from everyone, like, she can't because yeah. her friends are too <laughs> She good. has too many friends. Too many friends. 
<laughs> she has too many friends. It's like when you try to do a paper alone in the library and all your friends find you there and hang out and then you have to do your paper at 4 a.m. <laughs> exactly it's not really like, like that. that, though, because her friends did do, like, help her do stuff. And that's kind of, like, the lesson she learns in, the, in this book is, like, you can't do everything alone. Like, you've got, you have to rely on your friends and also, like, clerks. You also have to rely on clerks. <laughs> But, like, that's very different from Alana, because, like, the, you know, a a peak Alana moment was her sneaking off by herself, going through the snow, going on this mission entirely by herself, and coming back with the Dominion Jewel. And and Kel, right, tries to break off and immediately has, like, 30 people who just show up. Yeah. And, and like not in an easy way like they all have to strategize and do this in secretly in secret and jeopardize their careers and then she does yes. have to send half of them home to raise the stakes again okay th- i don't think this is a fr- th- i don't know if this goes in this section but i i do just want to point out that tamra pierce does not know who phaleron is <laughs> <laughs> what there were multiple consecutive scenes where she was like, and Neil and Merrick and Esmond and Seaver were there. And then later, Falloran has a line of dialogue. <laughs> was he in the scene or not, Tamara Peter? <laughs> oh, Abby, have you seen that you actually have gotten multiple, like, messages, people trying to get in contact mad at you for your Merrick hate? <laughs> I don't hate Merrick. I like Merrick. At no point have I ever hated Merrick. I can't believe how much Abby hates Merrick. Abby hates Merrick so much. She's always talking about it even when we're not on the podcast. Yeah, I'll be trying to talk to her just about her day. And she'll be like, my day was pretty bad because I remembered Merrick and how much I I think what I said on the podcast was Merrick gets hurt a lot, which, can I say, was totally bored out. He does get hurt a lot. He sure does. That doesn't mean that I don't like him. Mm, yeah, but then what you said off the podcast was like, we can't even repeat it here, so. It was very mean. My mom said that I had to stop hanging out people are calling me out because I'm the only one who brings up these very obscure friends at all. <laughs> like, no one else brought up Phaleron on this podcast. <laughs> I didn't even remember Phaleron existed. No, me yeah, neither. I mean, neither I did Tamara Pierce. When he had a line of dialogue, but I just assumed I forgot him, so... <laughs> No, I went back over the scenes with a fine tooth comb. <laughs> she doesn't know who Falloran is or who Seaver or Esmond are, I think. <laughs> she has got Merrick figured out at this point. I can't believe there was a character named Esmond because I have no recollection of Esmond ever being there. Esmond of Nicoline, he sure is a character. Great. I'm, he I'm is, proud I of think, him. the, char- the single was character in her friend group with the least amount of like screen time and or character development. Yeah, I don't I don't know anything about him except his name. I mean, yeah, Seaver's basically on that level, except I also know that Seaver is, like, part Bajir, I think. He yeah. also defended Kel, like, to somebody else in the friend oh, group yeah. at some point, yeah, and Seaver that was had a good. good moment. Yeah. Um, but Esmond had it's... no moments. <laughs> I swear that, like, she just thinks of Esmond and Seaver and Falaron as, like, a unit, so she just thinks that, like, she gets mixed up about which ones are in a scene. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's character development. There isn't very much <laughs> development of these extra friends. No, but I do, I do we, like them. 
We do have another important piece of uh, Cal character development that I want to talk about, though, which is that we have discovered one other thing that Kel is bad at. Kel is bad at two things. They're carpentry <laughs> and also plowing. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot express enough how much I love that before Kel got there, Dom secretly went to the carpenter and was like, listen, listen, Kel's going to try to build something. Do not <laughs> Don't let, let Kel her. try to build anything. <laughs> so cute. Yeah. That was really good. Especially given that they're, like, in this fort where, like, their best and, like, biggest skill set is, like, northern carpenters. Like, Like, do you specifically need to get involved in that, Cal? (laughs) She just wants to do everything. I do think that, like, she was bad at plowing, but it was her first time trying plowing, and we never saw if she, like, practiced (laughs) it and got better. So maybe she would be good at, or, like, at least okay at plowing. But carpentry just never, because they're never going to let her do it again. (laughs) She's too bad at it. Yeah. She's a liability. Yeah, I also, like, I did a tweet about this, but I really appreciate that Tamara Pierce invented how dare you assume that I have any dignity. Or bold of you to assume. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) That was very good. I liked your tweet. Thank you. No one likes my tweets enough. (laughs) That's a lie. Please don't worry about my tweets. Um... (laughs) Uh, yeah, she did totally invent that. And, like, wow, Cal's sass is just, like, I think it's so well done. It's so, it really actually makes me laugh when I'm reading the book. Um, and mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if Alana was just less sassy, right? Alana and Dane less sassy, or if I liked their sense of humor less. But I think Cal is, like, wow, very good. Dane was sometimes very, very sassy. Cal is um, the most But, yeah, funny. Kel, I, I think that Kel is very funny. And also Neil is very funny. Neil is so is funny. And they have a great dynamic. That is very true. I love that uh, the Wilden has to list, like, yeah, I thought about giving the refugee camp to Neil, but I couldn't because he's just, like, far too sarcastic with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, not... <laughs> But it's funny because he's talking about, like, oh, some people don't really see commoners as equal, and that's important, uh, but Neil just is not respectful to anyone, and that's the issue. (laughs) Right. Right. Everyone else is too, like, disrespectful of commoners specifically. Neil is just a very equal opportunity with his disrespect. So, like, good runner-up, but definitely not a first choice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, wait, a thing that I realized in this book is, like, in the past, this is not a role that Neil has occupied necessarily, but, like, he just got really worked up about, like, injustice, and then he was being the um, the healer at this camp and just being really grumpy about it, and everyone called him Grandma Neil, or, like, one person called him Grandma Neil, <laughs> but it stuck with me. And I think he might just be, like, bo- like Bones from <laughs> Star Trek. I think that's who he oh is. Oh, my now. gosh. <laughs> Just the sarcastic healer friend who's always there to tell you your decisions are bad. Good. Yes, because that's actually, like, what I had written down that I loved was just, like, Neil as a healer is Mm -hmm. so good. Like, the yelling at Kel for not, like, for, I think at one point he literally just yells at Kel for, like, getting a knife wound or something. It's like, (laughs) why? Why did you get hurt? You're not supposed to do that. Yeah, (laughs) you're not allowed to get hurt. Yeah, I also think this is part of Neil becoming less of a theater kid. Because when Tobias and everybody, Toby and everybody, were singing on the horses, Neil didn't join in. And if he were still a true theater kid, he would (laughs) have, no matter how tired he was. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think he's transitioning from 
dramatic theater kid to tired and grumpy healer, which is another archetype that I love very much. Right. Also, maybe mm-hmm. everyone singing gave him flashbacks to that time that everyone made fun of him by singing. <laughs> <laughs> There's no coming back from that. He just hates song now. Yeah, they ruined music for him. Oh no. It was also like the same people. Yeah. Too. yeah. Maybe it was the same song. We don't know that it wasn't. Maybe it was the same song. And they were just like, this is a fun marching song, right, Neil? And he was like, no. Neil just like steals all the bread just in case. So one thing that I want to say if we're going to be doing to Kellenbach, which is a comparison of Kellen Alana, is talk about the way that the conflicts sort of bore out in Kel and Alana. In Alana, everything was very dramatic, very heightened. And in Kel, there's just, like, especially in Lady Night, there's just a lot of anticlimax. Like, with Cleon, the way that that relationship yes. ends is Kel decides, Kel's just like, oh, I don't want this. And Cleon's like, actually, I have to get married for money now. I'm so sad. And Kel's like, yeah, that does seem sad. Yeah, sex, bro. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Yeah, and then it's never a problem again. It's just, that's just over, and it resolved so much less dramatically than it was built up to be. Right, and you were, at some point, you thought that relationship might be endgame. Yeah, and that, I did not like that. Did not want that. Um, No offense to Cleon, he's He's a fine fine. man. He was barely in this book, wow. Yeah, he really did not come back at all once they broke up. Yeah, and also, like, even just the part where Kel's like, oh, no, I look at him and I feel nothing. Like, that was built up to be, like, a problem. That was built up to be an issue. And then it just turned out to be resolved already. (laughs) It had already been resolved. Um, And that's true, I think, with some other things, too. For example, like, Veilstone is, like, oh, Oh, there's this guy challenging her power and he could be a problem. And it's like, not really. She's in charge and he can't do much about it. And then, right, even the ending of the book is, uh, you know, she she comments on it that, uh, you know, it was built up to be like, oh, this like super powerful mage who's a huge villain. And then she just like kills him. Yeah. And I love that. Like, I love this villain who has caused so much destruction is just a guy. Yeah. And I could easily kill him. And I am going to. (laughs) And I've done it. Yeah. Like, I love that. But also, in Alana, that is not how it would have been. Like, the Cleon thing would have taken half a book, John. <laughs> and, and also or Liam, a to book. be fair. Liam. <laughs> Everyone who's not George. <laughs> and even George, honestly. <laughs> but uh, also, and, notably, and... Uh, Roger, the villain in the final Alana book, was a villain in an earlier Alana book who died and came back. <laughs> True. Yeah, and everyone who disrespected Alana because of her gender, she had she like they died. And they died in like a very dramatic way, usually with Alana fighting them and them them refusing to honor the fight. And like in Kel, it just kind of is like the thing that is the problem is the system, and usually you can actually deal with conflicts pretty easily. And I like that as a difference between Kel and Alana. Well, either you can deal with conflicts easily, or you can just sort of move on. Like, I think a lot of the examples, like, especially uh, Veilstone, that guy, uh, you know, it's not necessarily... And also, in you know, we've seen in previous books, like, there's lots of knights who hate Kel for being a female knight. But, uh... You, the the idea is partially like that she doesn't necessarily have to decisively deal with them right. and like show that she's better or whatever she can just ignore them and live her life 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the system might not as a whole be fixed because that's a slow process. Mm-hmm. But, like, it doesn't all turn on one thing. You just you just keep slogging. Yep. And Kel is very good at slogging. <laughs> she's great at slogging. She's extremely grounded. Yeah. She's just, she's got it. Right. So then it, like, mm-hmm. it's a good question of, like, is this a difference in uh, the writing style in the book or is it a difference in the protagonist? Like, how she deals with things and, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, both yeah. because it's I a book it's that's both. written. But, yeah. yes. I mean, yeah, no, it's definitely, like, Kel is the only, Kel as a protagonist is necessary for the way this book deals with systems, because Kel thinks right, that way. Right, right. Um, and that, that is what I love about this book, is that the characters and the, the themes and the, and the plots mesh together so well. Definitely. I think it's, like, well-constructed in that it allows, like, mm-hmm. a new approach to some of some issues that we've looked at a little bit before, but in order to have this, like, new view, we also get a pretty new protagonist, which is cool. Yeah. And also, sort of as a reflection of that, I think, um, but more of an aside, I guess, the the way that um, fights are written in this book, I think, is often somewhat different. Like, when Kel's one-on-one fighting with someone, it's very much the same, but most of Alana's fights were, like, it's just Alana dueling a guy, and so many of the fights in this are... Kel maybe doesn't even, like, see much actual combat, but she's got the whole picture of the battlefield in her head, and she's, like, figuring out what other people should be doing and telling them to do that. Right. And I think that's mm-hmm. a that's a fun read, mostly. Yeah, yeah, and she's yep. a strategist. Yeah, and then yep. it does, when you look at, like, problems, it lets you look at them on, like, a systems level, which is pretty cool. So we're going to start out some social justice corner in this episode and continue next episode. But I think we wanted to uh, tackle the first little bit of our feminism discussion. There are two main parts of this book that speak directly to interactions between and among women. And like, uh, I kind of want to talk about both of them. They're both pretty quick, so I think we can yeah, get through sure. them. Yeah, so they are with, one is with Fanch and the other one is with Pelowin Archer. So... Mm-hmm. With Fan, she's the leader of one of the groups of refugees. She is very respected within that community. She's worked very hard and has a lot of authority. And her first interaction with Kel is can a lot like there's some conflict there. There's, <laughs> um, yeah. Like it's not as bad as other the way other people don't respect Kel, but it's like not great and there is a just there is a straight out discussion where Kel says like you need to work with me here and Fanch says Mm -hmm. and Fanch says like why because we're all sisters under the (laughs) goddess like because you're a woman and I'm a woman and we're supposed to get along and Kel's like no because it'll be easier if we get along right well, that's actually not the way exactly I would have portrayed that uh, conversation. Because first of all, it's Kel who brings up the women thing yeah. first. She's like, I can't, be- I, like, I'm surprised oh, that you true. as a woman mm-hmm. are not more willing to respect and me. And specifically you as a woman and, in command. Right, yeah. And and, and Fanch is like, why? Because we're all nice <laughs> to each other, because that's yeah. how women are supposed to be. And, and Kel is like, well, no, because you've been in command and you know what right. it's like when men disrespect you. And you know that this is something I'm facing right now that you can help right. me with. Um, or you can at least not po- pose a problem for me with. And, like, I found that really interesting because it, like, it both brought up this idea that, this false idea that we often have that obviously women don't cause problems for other women when it comes to feminist issues, which is untrue. Women are often some of the, you know, end up being some of the people who enforce the patriarchy a lot of the time. 
But also there's this acknowledgement that that's not inevitable and we can recognize these things and we can work past them and help each other. And so like, I actually really liked that interaction. Oh, I also really yeah, liked, I liked it. it. I just portrayed yeah. it really I also, I, You know, I don't know. Maybe I just like read this slightly differently. I don't particularly see Fanch as a character who supports the patriarchy. No, I don't think so either. Yeah. I mean, especially because she is a, the leader of her village. I don't think either of us were trying to say that. Okay, um, sorry, cool. maybe I implied that. What I meant was that she had an opportunity to like directly help Kel mm-hmm. d- deal with the fact that she was dealing with patriarchal opposition to her leadership. And K- Fanch was not f- interested in that because she was more focused on, that's not actually delved into that much, but presumably kind of protecting her own yeah. people's I interests mean, I think- and... What my my reading at least, which I don't have specific stuff to back this up, but what I remember is that Fanch's uh, issue with Kel was largely that she was very young and untrained or like un- not experienced, which is a pretty yeah. fair issue. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I and I can see why that. she's I'm... worried about her people in that situation. And yeah, I, I think that was a really cool character di- dynamic. And honestly, I really like Fanch and I like the way that sort of right. worked out. Yeah. yeah. And I also think Me it's also. kind of important that Kel gets this pushback and they kind of work through this issue where I think Fanch is kind of acknowledging like, yes, a lot of times you get doubt because you're a woman. This is not one of those situations we need to talk about some like actual complexities that will make this more difficult. Like... Right, and yeah, just because they're two women doesn't mean that they have to get along, right. you know? Like, they can right. still have differences of opinion and stuff. Yeah, the thing that I wanted to say about this is that, like, supporting other women does happen on an individual basis, and you can't, like, you should know what who you're dealing with and, like, what you're doing about rather than just kind of, like, and, like, it doesn't happen in the same way in every situation. So, like, in Kel's case, she is really young and is really yeah. inexperienced, and that should be part of it. And Fanch was right not to immediately jump yeah. in and, like, do everything that she said and to figure out what Kel actually knew yeah. first. And I love Yeah, that. that's a really good point. Thank you for bringing it up, Amy. Uh, so that's one should interaction. We do... And then we wanted to talk yeah. about... Amy, your second thing? Hello and Archer! <laughs> who I, this one was kind of weird for me. I had some weird feelings about it. Would love to work <laughs> through them as quickly as possible. <laughs> um, so the thing with Pella and Archer is two guys are having a fight. Mm-hmm. Kel sees that fight. Kel assesses the situation. And is like, oh, these two men are fighting over a woman. It's a little bit the woman's fault. <laughs> like, and I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Like mostly bad, but. I don't know. I think it's complicated because like, I think. It's one of those things where, like, you can say, like, that's a bad look, and, and like, I, I, what I'm especially not convinced of is that Kel could necess- I think we're supposed to kind of accept that Kel is just very good at social situations and can know all of this. Right. Um, like, I think it's silly to say that there are never situations in which, like, that, that are the situation that this portrays, that, that- yeah. A, a woman like it, it's a bad stereotype but it's also a bad stereotype that sometimes happens um so it's like but but we're we have you have to take on faith a lot in this to to put kel in the right really because you have to and like it's funny because it she clearly even recognizes that within the scene like immediately after it during the scene there's like this scramble to like make it clear to the reader that, like, Pelwyn definitely had the agency to make this choice. Right. 
Um, like, because there's this emphasis on, like, oh, yeah, like, she can totally make this choice, and if they don't agree with it, like, she can have them up on charges, and, like, divorce right, exists, like, by the uh, way. like, very explicit um, legal backing that she has the right to make this choice, and also, like, she was clearly into the fight. Like, we're really gonna <laughs> establish that. Right, so it's this weird thing, because, like, clearly, yeah, the, the book is trying really hard to, like, m- make it clear why she had power but also there like also in the real world there are so many situations where that's not true and it's Mm -hmm. often so much more complicated and also how did kel know all of this yeah immediately looking at this situation especially without even knowing like who pelowin archer was and this was like a new batch of refugees who just came in so yeah and yeah i also wanted to mention that this was the one interaction that we had that like the one scene with pelowin that we had before she shows up at the like much closer to the end when Kel is, like, rescuing the refugees, and then it's like, oh, she was definitely sexually assaulted. Right. Um, and it's kind of rough that this is the one scene that we have with her before that, which is, like, her, like, courting male attention, you know? Uh, if, if Kel makes an assumption and then that is, like, validated in the text, like, that's a choice in the text to indulge a cliche, mm-hmm. you know? Like, even if, kind of what you were saying, Shelby, that there's a lot of work to show, like, oh, she's okay, but, like, that work isn't necessarily positive, in a positive direction overall, you know? If you're really saying, like, right. well, she made an assumption, and it's a cliche, but, like, it really is what's happening in this constructed event, you know? Yeah. Right, right. No, it's 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 clear that Tamara Pierce knew there was uncomfortable stuff there, but her solution was not to put in the work on the front yeah. end. It was to put in the work on the back end where it <laughs> right, doesn't Right, like, I work. am gonna do this, but yeah. I'm gonna sort of, like, work really hard to, like, retroactively justify it. Right. Yeah. 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 And, like, it doesn't exactly refute the idea that, like, women really want men to fight for their attention and like Mm -hmm. you know I think that I also just have a lot of personal like things that I don't like about to not about denying women the agency like about like the idea of women having agency over who's going to fight for them because I feel like that doesn't really happen that often no yeah and and it does like this gives women are yeah it gives her kind of this weird control in a situation where I believe you know, were it to happen in reality, it would actually be something where women didn't have a lot of agency. Like, mm-hmm. Also, and this I acknowledge is the weirdest thing to get really upset over in this scene, but what drove me nuts in this scene as a public health person was stopping people with concussions. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh my god. That. I mean, to be fair, they do have magic healing and they did establish that they got healed immediately afterwards. Yeah, we'll just assume that their healing for concussions is magically far, far better than any ability we have to cure co- concussions. Yeah, I did. Like, I did decide to assume that they could just like totally heal their brains right. because otherwise it was bad. Honestly, yep. you maybe made the most valid. Point. <laughs> we just have to indulge that. There's clearly like a paratextual implication that they're great at healing brain injuries. <laughs> I really that's something I like to do in general in fantasy books with magical healing is just assume that they can always heal every wound completely yeah and like no one's walking around with like super stiff limbs or anything it's fine yeah they're all just 100% healed don't worry about it one last uh feministy thing that I think would be quick um so my thing is the quote um she found ways to firmly suggest things to men so that they came to believe that what she'd asked had been their own idea all along. Yeah. 
which is a fascinating, like, just, like, moment in this in book, <laughs> which is all about Kel being a female leader. Yeah. About, like, what is a very traditional female way of dealing with men while you're in a leadership position. Yeah, but sometimes you've um, got to use the power that you've got, you know? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I was just, I found it very interesting that, like, for the most part, we just see Kel being a leader because she's good yeah. at putting people where they need to be but in this one specific point we get this like oh and she also knows <laughs> like how to do the social politics of it like and that social politics is generally tricking people into thinking it was their idea right so she yeah people but especially men yes <laughs> um yeah okay so my thing is perhaps even faster than that but i just wanted to point out some mentions of some off-screen female characters that we got one uh we got like two mentions of yuki but in one they said that she was plump and that was exciting to me <laughs> great um two Burry quit her job why did she quit her job yeah. okay no this is not going to be fast abby why would you say that God, was fast because i have a lot of opinions about Burry having to relocate and quit her job yeah she's like a very important warrior who's in charge of a whole branch of the military and she quit her job to get married during a war <laughs> Also, Raul would never ask for that. No. Raul would never want that. No, no. and he's in, like, he's doing his job. Like, he talks, like, Raul would never ask Burry to quit her job to marry him. Like, can I just say that? That's just bad characterization. And also, <laughs> Burry would never want to. And yeah, I know I that it happened in canon. I, I but don't. But I disagree. Yeah. I, why would she want to? She's, like, p- still pretty young, I'm pretty sure. Like, she's still reasonably... Like, she's younger than Raul, for sure. And he's not quitting his job. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't know. I don't know. But I disagree with it heavily unless Burry did not actually quit and this is some kind of con. (laughs) She's going undercover. (laughs) Yeah. It's got to be a con. You're right. There's no other way to read it. That's in the book. Yeah. Like, yep, it was a definitely. one throwaway line. Why couldn't it just be like, oh, the Queen's riders were, like, helping out with a part of the war effort. As you would And assume. she happened to be at the yeah. fort, and they decided to get married. Yeah, I mean, I totally wrote this out of the book in my memory. I have, I did not, even this reader <laughs> didn't notice it, didn't uh-huh. remember it. And oh. I think I'm just going to stick with that. I remembered it. I didn't bring, up, bring it up now because I knew I was going to yell about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, good point, though. Out. That's important to yell about. Maybe we can do more yelling about it next episode if you want to. That I mean, I don't know great. if I have more yelling to do. <laughs> Amy looks like she has more yelling. She's making a yelling face about it. I mean, it. I'm sure I could yell for a long time. I don't know if I have more, like, points okay. about it. <laughs> great. I'll yell about it between episodes. All right, so now it's time for Palace Gossip, and uh, what I have for you is a tweet uh, from at UFO, I almost said underdash, UFO underscore Sparrow, (laughs) um, which says, so you discuss the missing friends, but what about the missing year? Pierce admits her timeline went off, so there is a full year missing from Cal's story. What do you think she was doing in that time? I'd like to start us off with a wonderful contribution that's also a tweet from Yale Kaplan, who says she befriended Brienne of Tarth, and they saved the world, obviously. (laughs) So there was possibly some sort of entirely separate save the world quest that we missed. What else do you guys think might have happened? Uh... First of all, because I was not aware of this missing year, do we know when the missing okay, year Okay, I was just looking through my book to try to figure that out. I mean, like, if you think about the plot of Squire, you can do the math and figure out that there's only three years there. Um, like, 
you know, I think, what, there's one year that she spends up north with the King's Own and, like, two years of progress. So presumably it's while she's a squire. That's mostly what I wanted to know. Yeah, it, it's yeah. while she's a squire for sure. She should have okay. one more year um, of being a squire. Unless she, like, the thing graduated about... early or something. The thing about squire is that it does have, um, you know, it has the, the, like, banners that have the years on them. So I was trying to figure out, I think it might be in my book before chapter 15, there's a uh, one of those year banners that just says, in the 19th and 20th years of the reign of Jonathan IV and Thayet, his queen, uh, spring, 19, spring 458 to spring 459. And it's possible that there's just, like, not an entire year in that, those few chapters, but I don't really remember. Yeah. We could have talked about this on the previous book, but we didn't. Um, we failed. So some great theories that I'm going to guess Gus put on our Twitter uh theorizes mm-hmm. that Kel was an exchange student to Emelon for a year. <laughs> uh Kel transcends time or too queer to print in 2001 YA. <laughs> I think all of these are extremely strong possibilities. We did already establish that some of Kel's various many friends were exchange students, so maybe she just yeah, was too. Um yeah, but missing year, who knows what could have happened? Crazy stuff. Wormhole in the forest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's Kel, so I would also buy, like, she just found, like, another animal and or child and raised them for a year? Like, yeah. probably. Or I just had, like, a pretty chill year learning about strategy. I would also take, she just spent a year learning about refugee camps and thus is not completely unprepared for this <laughs> That'd be She cool. was just really training hard for this book. I think John and Thea, like, looked at what happened the last year and were like, all right, there are robot killing machines and stuff. Let's all just take a year off, guys. <laughs> we're just not going to do anything this year. Everybody okay with that? And then the Everybody entire good? realm was like, yeah. Yeah. Right. I just want to like, get up to anything. Yeah, everybody just, had, like, sat down, drank some warm milk, maybe, like, <laughs> played some dodgeball. Relaxed. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty busy, like, three-year period, so I can see why they would want to take a year off. I agree. Especially, I mean, Cal, but also the realm as a whole. Also, I mean, like, we know, like, for example, Cleon, we know, spent a bunch of time in Mindelin because his Nightmaster was from there. Did Kel ever get to go home with Raoul? Like, maybe she just went and hung out on his feet for Maybe a year. they just hung out at Glo- yeah. Golden Lake. Yeah. They just kicked they it. They just kicked it. <laughs> they played some Smash Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know anything about Raoul, really. Um, he loves to kick it. Yeah. He loves to kick it. All right. Um, but if you have your own idea about what happened during that missing year, you can uh, tell us about it by tweeting us at Tortal Recall, uh, emailing us, tortalrecall at gmail.com, uh, or Tumblr-ing at us, yeah. <laughs> to us. In our general direction, uh, tor- uh, ne- uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's where you can find us. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I found, sorry, I was just still trying to investigate this timeline thing. I found Abby, this a, is the um, end a, of our like, podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We can cut this This is out. too much podcast. But like, uh, there's a, there's like a super in-depth, uh, timeline of the book's on tamarapierce.net um and it has like it lists up to 19 or i keep saying 19 <laughs> nope 456 the year um and but then the next year is 457 in brackets 458 <laughs> 
definitely one of those two. <laughs> kind of both. The time stream got a little messed up uh, there. Yeah, too busy kicking it. Forgot to record stuff on the calendar. Sometimes <laughs> it happens. Thanks to our music. So actually what happened is like the scribes just got a little oh, confused man, and like wrote the oh, wrong no. date. <laughs> the entire like, like, just lost right after really tall and possibly all the others just lost a year. And like those squires just got three years. Sorry. Like Gasly that's cat. how we calculate four years. Just messed up the calendar. Also, Kel thinks she's 18. She's actually 17. <laughs> oh no, then she's even more of a baby. <laughs> sorry um thanks to our music which is green sleeves green sleeves by zeta stop podcasting everyone um uh thanks to our music which is green sleeves by zeta um and that's all who wants to say the sign off see ya tortellini good job